Hello and a very good morning, good afternoon, good evening and good night wherever you are in the world. This week we don't have a new episode for you. We have instead a rebroadcast of episode 20 of the podcast which we released about this time last year. The title is Fear and Loathing on Mount Fuji. And the reason why we decided to broadcast this episode is that because of the coronavirus pandemic, Mount Fuji is currently closed to all visitors. But this story focuses on that mountain and in particular the journey of one of my colleagues as we try to get to the top of it in some of the worst conditions I've ever had on the mountain. It's one of my favourite episodes that I've ever recorded for the show and if you've not listened to it already, I really hope that you enjoy it. If you have already heard it, maybe you'll enjoy listening to it all over again. It's got a lot of sounds from the outside world, which I know many people are missing right now, including myself. We'll be back with new episodes in a couple of weeks, sometime around the beginning of August. Until then, if you'd like to support the show, then please do consider rating it or reviewing it on whichever podcasting platform you're using. Last but not least, I hope you're having a good summer. Now please pull out the snacks from 7-Eleven and enjoy episode 20 of the podcast, Fear and Loathing on Mount Fuji. Sean McKenna, you're standing at the top of Mount Fuji in two degrees temperature, ferocious wind. Do you remember how we got here? I, I don't know. I don't know if I can remember anything right now. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Deep Dive, a podcast that looks beneath Japan and occasionally, just very occasionally, stands right at the very top of it. I'm Oscar Boyd. Today we're bringing you a slightly different episode, an episode that's been a couple of months in the making, one that involves a climb to the top of Japan's tallest point, Mount Fuji. It all started back in May. I'd just completed my fifth and what I hoped would be my last climb of Mount Fuji. It was a 16-hour sea to summit of the mountain in which I cycled and climbed to the top with skis on my back and then skied back down again. After I'd finished that, I was back in the Japan Times offices and my colleague, Sean McKenna, on the Life and Culture desk came up to me and he asked me how I was doing. Sean, do you remember that conversation? I remember regretting it at the time. (laughs) So Sean came up to me and he told me that he thought I should make a podcast about my climb. I said I hadn't recorded any of it and didn't really think it worked that well as an episode. But then I asked him. Well, you asked me if I'd ever climbed Mount Fuji. To which you said. No. And then this evil little grin came on your face. (laughs) And you said, why don't we make a podcast out of that? And so we did. Which is also why I sound like I have a cold right now. So a little bit about Mount Fuji. It's 100 kilometers southwest of Tokyo. And as anyone who's seen it up close knows, it's an absolute giant, sloping down from its peak for almost 50 kilometres to the Pacific Ocean to the south. It's 3,776 metres tall, and it stands almost 2,000 metres higher than every mountain around it, which means it can be seen from Tokyo. Tons of people complete the trip to the top each year, but it's not an easy climb. And if you want to reach the summit, you have to battle with altitude, weather, and the mountain's relentless gradient. All are challenges that can be overcome, but it can be a daunting climb, especially to those who've never climbed such a tall mountain before. Which takes us to you, Sean. Describe yourself to me. So I'm 41. I'd never climbed any mountains before this project. Um, I'm not sporty in any way. 
uh, and I'm not entirely athletic. I do have a Fitbit, <laughs> um, which I managed to get like 10,000 steps. A day? Uh, almost, almost every day. <laughs> and I think that's kind of the extent of my, or it was the extent of my athleticism at the time. But I think also I kind of have this personality type uh, where I kind of imagine worst case scenarios from the get-go, which maybe prevents me from doing a lot of that kind of stuff. And so um, I also tend to be like overly prepared for the worst case scenario, which (laughs) you'll find out as we go through this podcast. Okay, so you think worst case scenario. <laughs> Overly fair. Worst case scenario, not athletic. Fuck, this is a terrible Tinder profile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you're imagining the worst of every scenario. Thinking back to May, when I asked you, do you want to climb Mount Fuji with me? How, how did you react initially? Well, I think that initially, well, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> um, I think I did kind of see the value in possibly trying it out as a podcast, um, especially if I were to collapse in messy drama at the top. I thought that would be, you know, great. Uh, yeah, most of uh, our colleagues asked me to try and make Sean cry for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that um, that's kind of what was going through my head. And then I started to actually realize, no, this would be me. That would be the subject of it. And I, my main goal was basically just I didn't want to get injured. Mm-hmm. And what had you heard about Mount Fuji before uh, you climbed it? It's weird. I, I've heard from almost everybody that it's unenjoyable. I don't think I've... In fact, it was weird that you'd climbed it more than <laughs> three times uh, just yeah. because everybody seems to hate it. And at the same time... I also heard that like kids climb it and that elderly people climb it um, so that it shouldn't be a big deal. But they just the two kind of impressions didn't line up for me. Yeah, there's this very strange reputation Mount Fuji has because it is, I mean, it is a serious mountain. It's, as I said, only 3,776 meters tall, mm-hmm. um, which is in proper altitude territory. Yeah. And yet because this infrastructure built around it, and it is very accessible from Tokyo, which is Japan's largest city and the largest city in the world. A lot of people do make the climb. Yeah. So my first instinct would be to like open up that uh, Cicerone guide to climbing Mount Fuji and just, you know, like looking at all the hazards. Like <laughs> I, I'm, I'm that kind of person. And, and so, yeah, I just kind of started preparing for all the possible outcomes. And what was your biggest worry at the time? My biggest worry at the time was that I was unfit and that I might possibly injure myself. Like I, I could, you know, like I could have exhaustion or I might hurt my legs or something like that. Or maybe I might twist my ankle. But not death. You know what? I didn't even think of that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God I didn't. <laughs> so you say you're an overprepared person normally. In this case, what did you do to prepare to get yourself in a state where you felt a bit more comfortable with what was going on? Okay, so it's weird. At the time, I had actually had a uh, kind of two friends who'd gone through some health problems. So I was already in the frame of mind where it was like I should join a gym because, you know, I'm just worried about age and kind of different health problems that could come up. And then I took that to the next level by hiring a personal trainer, Mitch Kondo, 
Um, so I met with him like twice a week and he would just kind of like help me with endurance training. So yeah, so I kind of feel like I had that under control. My other um, problem was that I was worried when we got to a lodge on the mountain that I wouldn't be able to relax or sleep. Mm. So I actually downloaded a uh, meditation app and I kind of taught myself how to meditate. (laughs) (laughs) So I spent a month meditating every (laughs) night and sometimes in the day, um, which now I'm actually enjoying quite a bit. Um, And the training too? And, and the training, I am actually really enjoying the training. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So yeah, so I kind of had this whole lifestyle switch uh, to prepare for this. Mm-hmm. And then the final thing that we did was that I decided to do practice mountains. Because you'd never climbed any mountains before? Because I'd never climbed anything, yeah. So I first started with Mount Takao, um, which is 599 meters high. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, that was, it was fine. It was a basic hike. Um, but still I did get a little bit like winded at first. And in my head, I was just kind of like, you know, this is, I don't know why people do this. This is stupid. <laughs> I just wasn't connecting with nature. And it seemed like everybody would say, isn't this lovely? And I, I just wasn't in the frame of You're mind. Concentrating like, too much on your breath. Than the, uh, yeah. The and around. my physical state um, mm-hmm. and kind of like getting in my head about that. So at that point, you're on a mountain that is approximately a seventh of the size of Mount Fuji. That's insane to think of that now. Yeah. And yeah. How, how are you feeling about the Fuji climb at that point? I don't know if I was actually thinking about the Fuji climb at that point. That actually happened on the second practice climb, which was with you, mm-hmm. uh, Mount Mitake. Um, which is, how high is Mount Mitake? It's, I believe 920 meters. Okay, so yeah. So in the first hour of the Mount Mitake climb, I really kind of thought that I wasn't going to be able to do the Fuji climb. So we've just made it to the top of a very misty, very wet Mount Mitake because we're in training for Sean's adventure in a few weeks, which is what? Oh, I'm going to climb Mount Fuji. <laughs> I'm a little out of breath. Because I was just so out of breath and tired and miserable. And it was raining at the time. Mm. You were very patient. <laughs> I was me. very patient. It was, a, it was a test for both of us because I wanted to see how well I thought you'd do. And I think there was a point about 20 minutes in <laughs> of maybe a three to four hour round trip. We went, are, are we there yet? Yeah, <laughs> I'll be anywhere near the top. Yeah, and I have to say that I think climbing it with you, I really wanted to know if you were going to be understanding because <laughs> I I think that, you know, when you go into a situation where you don't really know uh, how things are going to work out, you do kind of want that one person that you know you can trust. Mm. Um, so, I mean, good news is you were <laughs> good with that. And then on the Mitake climb, uh, an hour into it, you suggested I just have one of the energy jellies. Mm. And I got the, we found a stick <laughs> and the stick came, became like a security blanket and my mood completely changed. Yeah, it was quite remarkable. But <laughs> <it's> actually, <laughs> <laughs> Those energy jellies. Um, but yeah, the second half of the climb, I was really positive and kind of making jokes and smiling. And yeah, on the way down too, I was pretty happy as well. Nice. So with all this training you and climbing the mountains as well, you committed in a pretty big way. 
I did, but funny enough, like in the office, I still didn't say that I was going to climb Mount Fuji. Like I would always say that I might climb Mount Fuji and it's something we're thinking of doing. Um, even though I'd got a trainer, bought a meditation app and had started <laughs> climbing like smaller mountains. I, I just couldn't, I needed that escape route. I needed to know that. You needed a way out. Yeah. That I like didn't have to do it if I didn't feel like I could. And I mean, Mitake still, it kind of still felt that way. It still felt like I might not be able to do the Mount Fuji climb. And when did, or did any sense of confidence that you might uh, be able to do it eventually come to you? So about two weeks later, um, we ended up climbing Takigoyama, which is like 1,600 meters. Yeah, 1,620. Okay. It's about two weeks now before we attempt the climb up Mount Fuji. Sean, this is your tallest mountain to date, 1,620 meters. You're going to have to come closer, but how are you feeling? I'm feeling okay. Right now we're enjoying our coffee, but there's a lot of bugs. <laughs> I didn't realize how many bugs there'd be. Yeah, when we climbed that one, um, I did that on no sleep because my neighbor was up yelling. <laughs> um, he was drunk and happy, so that's okay. Um, but yeah, I was able to do it and I was in a pretty good mood the entire time. So I kind of, at that point, I realized that I'd overcome that mental barrier. And I was much more comfortable at that point saying like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm climbing Mount Fuji. And Well, I remember you texting me the night before being like, oh, it's 3 a.m. I haven't got any sleep. Are you still sh sure you want to do this? And I was like, well, actually, that's probably the most realistically close to Mount Fuji you're going to be. Almost having no sleep is the best training for climbing a mountain as big as Mount Fuji. That's actually, and it's a really good point. Like it, it actually made sense logically <laughs> to me. And I think that's what convinced me. It was like, you know, doing it on no sleep, a smaller, easier mountain where you have like possible outs um, is going to be the best test of whether or not you can do something harder. Mount Fuji occupies a really prominent place in the cultural imagination of Japan. It's featured in art, literature, film, and poetry, most famously in Hokusai's series of paintings, 36 Views of Mount Fuji. It's also made its mark outside of Japan, and was seen as so essential to Japanese morale that there was an ill-thought-through and thankfully never acted upon plan during World War II to dye the entire mountain black. The mountain has long been considered a sacred object in Japan, and the first climb was supposedly made by a monk in the 7th century. In 2013, it was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and now over 200,000 people make the climb each summer, during the official opening window from July to September. When it came to our climb, our plan was to climb the Fujinomiya route, which is one of four main trails up the mountain. We'd spend a night at a mountain hut a couple of hundred metres shy of the summit, then when we woke up in the morning, we'd climb the last bit of the trail to the top in time for the sunrise. And so on July 11th, we left Tokyo on a 7am bullet train bound for Shin Fuji Station. Good morning. How are you feeling? I'm actually kind of nervous. <laughs> Here in the lofty halls of Tokyo Station. Yeah, I was feeling really anxious on that train. Um, I was a bit tired too, like I'd had a good sleep, but I still woke up at around 4.30am. And actually I saw the sunrise from my apartment. You know, I was admittedly a little bit surprised you turned up at the station that morning. <laughs> there was always a part of me which was like, we'll get to the morning, the morning of, and Sean will just vanish. 
I might have said to you that I felt a bit nauseous. I, yeah. I, I, can't, I can't decide if I'm hot or cold. <laughs> I kind of feel nauseous. <laughs> well, the mountain will soon tell you. I think you did. Okay. You looked a bit nauseous. I don't think I'd, yeah, I don't think I'd I don't ever see you why. that pale. Yeah, I, I, just, I guess it's just nerves, just an excitement um, kicking in. And so we zoomed through uh, the suburbia of Japan and ended up at Shinfuji Station, at which we caught a bus, um, which was about two hours long, taking us to the fifth station of the Fuji no Mir Trail. Yep. During that bus ride... You saw Fuji up close for the very first time. Yeah. <laughs> How was that for you? Well, um, I remember thinking, yeah, I can see Mount Fuji uh, from my apartment and it's really beautiful. Um, like it's usually snow capped because you'll see it more often in the winter. Um, and it's just blue, like, and it's set against a nice blue sky. It, it's very like postcard esque. Um, but seeing the mountain from the base, it just seemed completely different. It looked black. Mm. Um, and I guess that's just kind of the volcanic rock. It looked like a shadow set against the sky. And that kind of made it a little bit more intimidating at the time. Um, and, and looking then, up at what could you see? Well, you started to be able to see details. So because there's no trees, it's barren. So like, you could see the huts in the distance and they didn't look that far, but you knew they were. Um, but also the slope really mm. came into like detail and I realized how steep it was. And how did that compare to other hikes you'd done until that point? Well, the other hikes, I don't think I ever got a picture of the entire mountain. Like there was always trees. So it was just kind of like a path. This didn't look as, it, as if it had any like leveling off points in which we could like take a break. Okay, so we arrive at the bottom of the Fujinomiya Trail. Tell me what you know about the route. Okay, as you said, it's um, one of four routes that goes up the mountain, and it starts from Gogome, or fifth station, uh, which is already around 2,400 meters um, high. And then it's just like Fuji just stretches for what seems like miles above you. Um, you can see the other stations, like I said. Um, there's the six the new seventh and the old seventh, which at first I thought was a little bit of a cheat, but then I was really happy to get that extra little break. <laughs> um, yeah. Then there's the eighth, the ninth, the 9.5 yep. and then the summit, which is the 10th station. Um, the route itself, I mean, that's pretty steep and it was rocky. Uh, and you could, you could see it as you got to the bottom. Um, so it wasn't kind of like something that happened halfway up the mountain. It's, it was right from the start. It seemed rocky. Um, and then I think it takes anywhere between three to seven hours to climb to the top. And then it would be what, about half that? About half that to, to get, get down. down. Yeah. Mm. Um, so yeah, so at the fifth station, um, where we started, there was a big shop selling supplies for people making the climb and, you know, gift shops and people asking for donations to clean the mountain. Um, you can buy sticks, uh, so when you stop at each of the stations, you can get like a little thing burned into your stick to mark your progress. Um, I decided not to get one just because I'd already like packed a lot because like I said, I'm, I overprepare for everything. So I didn't want to weigh myself down any more than I had to. <laughs> with so. one extra stick. <laughs> with one extra stick. Yeah. <laughs> and tell me about the type of people who are at the fifth station, you know, who kind of got on and off the bus with us. Um, it was a wide variety of people from different like places. Uh, like we heard Thai 
uh, being spoken. We heard um, Chinese, and there was maybe one other Western-looking couple. Um, and then there was a bunch of Japanese people as mm -hmm. well, of course. Um, they were all pretty much dressed the same way that we were. Uh, so they had like the standard hiking gear and bags and people had poles and things like that. So yeah, it looked like a bit of a squad. I remember thinking that the weather was really great um, at the time. So it wasn't like too hot and it wasn't too cold. And it was like maybe raining just slightly so that it was a bit of a mist. And mm -hmm. I found that in the practice hikes, I really liked that because if you get hot and sweaty, like it's a little bit of a refreshing thing. So yeah, I didn't mind like a slight little drizzle. Okay, you'd done your prep. We'd taken the train, we'd taken a bus, we'd arrived at the start of the route. Finally, after two months of talking about it, about six weeks of which you were pretending you weren't actually going to do it. Mm -hmm. How did you feel stepping onto the route? Well, I think um, I didn't feel any positives from the preparation, but like I didn't feel any or negatives. <laughs> yeah, like I think basically most of my prep stop me from being worried. So I kind of felt like, you know, I was safe when it came to a whole bunch of scenarios and I was kind of going to be okay with that. Um, we got to the sixth station in good time and I think I was kind of confident. Yeah, like what, what's here? So we're at the sixth station. Um, there seems to be like a little cafe uh, with some souvenirs for sale. There's a vending machine. Um, they're selling, oh, is that canned oxygen? It is canned oxygen. Okay, they're selling oxygen. I might have been Jeez. slightly cocky because I think I was going to say to you, oh, this is a piece of cake or something <laughs> like that. But then I might have stopped. I, I, I can't I remember. I think you made a comment at the time about how nice it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't want to burst your bubble and <laughs> describe you it. Because you knew coming. Yeah, yeah. I, I've done that before <laughs> and I knew what was coming. Um yeah, so I was quite happy for you to be happy in and, that moment. And a bit cocky at the time. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, because we kept going and it got a bit harder. We are approaching the Fujinomiya Trail's old seventh station, which means we've crossed the 3,000 meter mark. We did. How how's it to be above 3,000 meters and not in a plane? Oh, yeah, I never thought of it that way. Uh, tiring. <laughs> I'd rather let the plane do the work. Got a bit harder. Um, it did start to rain. Um, and as we approached the eighth station, the wind kind of picked up a bit. Um, but I still didn't like think it was going to be much of a problem. We're at the eighth station. <laughs> and that stretch from old seventh to eighth was very rocky and quite a challenge to get up. Weather update. It's cold. Thank you. Uh, um, the rain is still kind of the same, isn't it? Yeah. But I feel like we turned a corner and then the wind started. <laughs> I really felt the wind. Um, and then by the time we got to the ninth station where we were planning to spend the night at the hut. Which is about 3,400 meters up at that point. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, we were really high at that point. And so I kind of thought like, oh, I could probably just do this. Like I could probably just do the rest of it because mm. I was kind of in 
kind of good shape. Well, that's what I was thinking looking at you as well. When we'd planned the route, obviously the hut in my mind was the rest point um, where if things weren't going well or altitude was really kicking in, mm -hmm. um, you would be able to stop, take a proper, proper break, lie down for a bit, have some good food um, and recover. Yeah. But no, you were in pretty good nick by the time we got there. And I remember saying to you, would you like to continue to the top? And then I think that, um, you know, we th I thought it's better just to stick with the original plan because the original plan dealt with a bunch of possible problems. So I didn't want to deviate from that plan. So, And, and also the rain had actually started to pick up. Like it wasn't a pleasant drizzle anymore. It was starting to be like proper rain. So I thought it would be good to get out and just kind of dry off. What are we doing? We're at the night station hut and we've got our Yamagoya. Yeah, the Yamagoya. Tell me about this hut that we stayed in then. So we chose to spend the night at the hut because it was going to help climatize um, me, at least, to the altitude because I'd never been up that high outside of an airplane before. Um, and the hut itself is at 3,460 meters. Uh, so we got in and it was kind of like a capsule hotel mixed with a cabin from camp when you're a kid. <laughs> um, you get these little cubbies. Um, you can stand up in the cubbies. They're, they're kind of tall, uh, but they fit four people. Um, luckily, there wasn't like a lot of people. So it was just kind of the two of us in the cubby. Yeah, I mean, if it was all four people in each one, it's proper shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder sleeping in sleeping bags. So yeah, it would no, have been cramped. There's no real space at all. Yeah, it was strangers. Um, and then there's kind of like these partitions in between the cubbies. And then you got in and got you in. went to sleep almost immediately. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, you missed the couple next to us. <laughs> started making love. <laughs> so, yeah, I was just really kind of surprised at how bold that move was. <laughs> there was not much separating you from them, right? No, there isn't. Yeah. And then I kind of thought like, oh, I don't, maybe this is kind of like a game, you know, you like fuck your way up Fuji. <laughs> Stop at each station for a quickie. Yeah. And like, you know, I guess that's a great story afterwards. You know, you can have bragging rights, you know, because they were like right there. Um, I heard the guy complaining about like being dehydrated and having a headache and like <laughs> she was really uncomfortable too. So it was just like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, so we ended up having um, dinner and dinner was uh, curry rice. It's, it's, it's standard, like standard Japanese curry rice. Does it taste better than Actually, I I think um, for Japanese people, this has a very like nostalgic vibe about it. Not me. For me, that would have been <laughs> for, that would have been craft dinner. They serve craft dinner here. Canadians love craft dinner. I think the real treat of the night was uh, a glass of hot sake each. Yeah, because it was cold inside that hut. Yeah, I also had like a cup of corn soup and it was not great corn soup, but it was just nice to have like kind of like a warm 
I was going to say warm liquid, and then I kind of thought of the couple. So I don't <laughs> want to... <laughs> yeah, the the hot sake was really nice. Although I was a little bit worried that we were drinking sake and it was kind of that high altitude. But hey, <laughs> might as well celebrate. Yeah, to that point, it had been really nice. As you said, it had been raining slightly, but nothing that was troubling us that much when we went to bed. It was lights out at 8 p.m. I didn't get to sleep for about an hour and a half, though. Um, but then the lights came back on at 2 a.m. And we got up and got dressed, got out of bed. And then that's when we realized everything had changed. Because Mount Fuji is so, so much higher than anything around it, the weather changes on a dime. In the summer, you might start climbing in blue skies and 38 degrees centigrade temperatures, only to find yourself at the top in thick cloud and shivering as the wind whips up a storm around you and chills everything to around zero degrees. Or the opposite might happen, and what starts off as a nightmare climb can turn into one of the best days you'll ever have on the mountain. Fuji generates its own weather, and that makes it unpredictable. It's quarter to three in the morning. We just woke up, and you might as well put that in quote marks because I don't know if we really slept. No, well, I, you slept. I had a lovely sleep. I didn't. Nestled in your armpit. <laughs> <laughs> After we'd woken up at 2 a.m., it felt like all hell had broken loose outside. Have you seen outside? I haven't seen outside. I've heard outside. What does, what, does it, what does outside sound like? I've heard the wind and I've heard the rain. Um, but I haven't looked. I remember opening the door and just the cloud whipping past at like highway level speed. It was insane. It kind of reminded me of the planet Hoth from Empire Strikes Back, except like with rain instead of snow. Yeah, I mean, we ended up back in the main dining hall, kind of all our kit on, ready to go outside. But do you remember uh, when those climbers came in from outside? They were absolutely drenched, um, and the whole room just stared at them. Yeah, the whole room stared at them because they knew that this was their yeah. fate. <laughs> Everyone was kind of looking for any excuse not to go outside. And, and it's the kind of thing where like, you're looking at someone, and then they look at you, and you look away. Nobody looked away. Everyone continued to stare at them. And then that one guy just went, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> Still, we packed all our things up, and we had some breakfast, and stepped outside the hut at around 3.30 a.m. Yeah, at this point we were still aiming to get to the top by sunrise. Yeah, and it was pitch black outside. Um, our headlights uh, didn't seem to be doing anything in the fog, and we had this like long debate as to whether or not we would continue. Yeah, we're about to leave the ninth station. It's raining and it's windy. It sounds terrible. Oh my gosh, it looks worse. Go, go. I'm honestly not going to have it. What was going through your head at the time? I mean, at that point, I still really wanted us to get to the top of sunrise. Um, in my head, that was still the goal. I, I'd kind of promised you this sunrise, and maybe I wasn't taking in the reality of how bad the uh, <laughs> cloud was. But I also had this um, 
thought you know we'd woken up we'd had some energy gels we were kind of ready to go and mm -hmm. I didn't want to go back inside kind of lose that energy and momentum we had I was a bit worried that maybe if we both went back inside and we woke up and it was still raining and still miserable outside we just wouldn't continue the climb and that would kind of be the end point yeah for me like worst case scenario Sean came to the forefront and I just kind of like didn't think that I would be able to see. And I started thinking, well, what if I go off the wrong path? And like the guys in the hut were saying like, I wouldn't go out there if I were you. And even the guy who was like running the hut, he was saying that it didn't seem as if we'd be able to see the sunrise. Mm. So I think I just needed my escape route at that time. I needed to know that if this was going to be impossible, like you would understand that and you would be able to like, want to come back to the hut and kind of just come up with a plan B. And then we decided to try it. I got like 20 steps and my hood kept kind of like blowing in front of my headlamp. So I couldn't see anything except very brief like glances of the steps and rocks in front of me. Um, I didn't know where you were. And I remember calling out to you and then you just kind of like came back and said we're going back to the hut yeah when we were standing in and just outside the hut waiting um and kind of deciding whether we were going to go i hadn't appreciated at that point how sheltered the hut was by comparison to the open slope right i mean the hut's pretty exposed so i thought you know whatever the conditions are here it can't be that much worse around the corner yeah. but i was very wrong and so yeah we took 20 steps out and the wind was so strong we couldn't see a thing the rain i remember the rain was coming through my clothes i remember feeling like a trickle of water coming down my knee i think that was the point where i went it's just not worth it in the dark um need to go back hopefully the rain will ease off a bit the wind will ease off a bit but the cloud at that point was moving pretty much vertically up the mountain <laughs> yeah <laughs> the cloud in my head goes sideways this was moving up yeah. just from the wind blowing it in yeah. And so, yeah, we went back to the hut and decided to get like a little rest. Um, I remember at the time I kind of thought I'd like disappointed you um, just because like I, I thought it was like my oh, fault. My, boy. <laughs> <laughs> my fault that we weren't able to do it. But at the same time, I was thinking in my head, I, I do think this is the right choice. So I don't feel that guilty for disappointing you. I wasn't disappointed. I, that, that decision was 100%. You know, it wasn't that you were with me. It was just a bad idea, full stop, to continue right. up that mountain. Yeah. So then, yeah, we decided to try to get, like, a little bit more sleep. Again, you went to sleep right away. I had had those energy bars, and I was just, like, buzzing. <laughs> so I just turned to the meditation app and tried to, like, calm myself down. <laughs> so I went back to sleep. You kind of meditated slash semi-dozed for a couple of hours. Um, we got up at 5.30 again, but we still had 300 meters to go to the top. It was still raining. It was still very, very windy. Normally from the ninth station, you have a pretty clear view of the top. You can kind of tell how far it is and that gives you a bit of motivation. But right, at this yeah. point, you couldn't see anything at all. So what was going through your head as we made kind of our final push to the summit? <laughs> on, a, <laughs> on a scale of one to uncomfortable, where are you at? Well, I mean, what, like, is 10 war? This isn't war. <laughs> so it's a nine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nine. Well, I think actually the altitude made my breathing really difficult. 
um, I would climb a few steps and my body wasn't tired, but I, I got really out of breath. Um, and parts of the route were really difficult. Like a lot of guides kind of just recommend that you have poles with you, but I found them to be like really necessary on the last part of that climb. And then as I was nearing the top, the water got all in my shoes. Um, and I'd almost bought gaiters at the store uh, to kind of prevent that from happening, but I didn't do that. So I think I'd said to you, we'll only need them if it's really rainy. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Ended up being torrential downpour. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of miserable, but I didn't want to give up. And you had once said uh, to me on one of the climbs that the best thing to do in those situations is kind of just look like a little bit in front of you and then try to make it to that point. And with the climb up Fujinomiya, there were a lot of turns. Mm. So I would just make it to the one turn and then I would kind of stop, you know, collect my breath and then kind of move on. Um, and I found that made it like a little bit easier. Of course, looking back on it now, I'm happy that I had that experience. But at the time, it was really miserable. Are you dizzy at all? No, I'm not dizzy. Lightheaded? Not lightheaded. Feel like you're going to vomit? I mean, I always feel like I'm going to and then we got to the Tori Gate at the top of the Fujinomiya route, and all of a sudden it was over. We'd made it, but I couldn't see anything at all. So finally, there we were at the top of Mount Fuji, 3,776 meters up, the tallest point in Japan, and the conditions were awful. In six summits, of the mountain. I'd never seen weather so bad. And I felt for Sean. Sean, I really felt bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> You'd come all the way up to the top of the mountain on kind of my promise that we'd have this fantastic sunrise and one of the best views in all <laughs> Japan. And we were standing in clouds so thick we might as well have been in the Stephen King horror film, The Mist. We could have been anywhere in the world. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was bittersweet. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly bitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I'd made it. I'd achieved my goal. Um, we hadn't gone down yet, but I'd achieved my goal of getting to the top of Mount Fuji. Um, I wasn't really in the mood to think back as to how I was a month earlier and kind of reflect on the accomplishment itself. I just knew that I was cold and miserable and I, we had to get down from the mountain. Um, so to kind of distract us, you suggested we go to the post office. The post office. That's at the top of Mount Fuji. It's really cool that there's a post office up here. It is cool that there's a post office up here. Would you like to know what I said to my family? Uh, do you want to read it out? Yes, in Burlington, Ontario. <laughs> Hello, family. I'm stand sending this postcard <laughs> from the top of Mount Fuji. I'd say wish you were here, but it's actually quite miserable. I'm looking forward to so we wrote three postcards. One was to your parents, <laughs> asking them as to why they didn't get you to take up piano when you were younger instead of climbing. Um, and then we walked into a shrine and we bought some kind of little omamori for uh, people that we know. So there's a little kind of charms from the top of top of Mount Fuji, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, as we exited the shrine. Suddenly, the weather changed again, and sun. 
Yeah, to be honest, if there's ever been a semi-religious moment in my life, it was the moment we went into a shrine, bought some little charms <laughs> to support the shrine, and then came outside having been in the worst conditions on the mountain ever and seeing blue sky. It was insane. And to make it even better, there was a rainbow, a rainbow <laughs> into the crater of Mount Fuji. I was beside myself. My mood changed completely. It, it, was, was, like, it was like that moment on uh, Mitake when you found your stick. <laughs> <laughs> it was but. like that moment in Noah's Ark when the floodwaters kind of receded and a rainbow appeared, that it was biblical. <laughs> yeah, I was so pleased at that point because I've climbed Fuji in band weather before, but it's kind of always thrown me a bone at some point. Like there's an hour at some point uh, where the sun comes out and it's beautiful. You get this amazing sunrise and whatever difficulties you've had, you get to the top and see something along the way that you're like, that was that totally made the climb. Yeah. I was really worried in this case <laughs> that we'd get to the top. It would be misty on the way up, terrible weather, misty on the way down, terrible weather. And you would come away from it going, what was the point? Yeah. Why yeah. did we do that? So yeah, when the rainbow came out, I I was delighted for you. No, Oscar, the rainbow was a stroke of genius. It really was. <laughs> that, that's what took yeah. two I months. I mean, it was still that's cold. That's what took two, two, two months to plan for <laughs> yeah. this podcast. I mean, it was still cold. And I think at one point you even had to like stop and warm up your fingers um, because they were so like freezing mm. with the wet clothes and the, the cold wind and everything. But but yeah, what a what an ending. Mm, and then the way down was, I mean, it's a, a completely different mountain. I got a sunburn. <laughs> Through your tights. That's <laughs> crazy. So we took the Yoshida Trail uh, down because you had thought, you know, we were worried about the weather and the Yoshida Trail would give us some protection from the wind, you, you thought? Yeah. So, I mean, it was coming down the other side of the mountain. So I thought we'd get the wind behind us. Also, the Fujinomiya route is much steeper. And because it was wet and you couldn't really see much, I thought the Shida Trail would generally just be a bit safer to, to go down. Yeah. Um, so we were going down that. And then it was funny because it was like the actual proper opening of the Yoshida route. And you just saw these people kind of like starting their climb in T-shirts and jeans and sandals. And I was like, are these people climbing the same mountain? Like, they, like I'm in all this gear and prepared. And yeah, they're, they were just kind of like doing it for fun. Nobody does this for fun. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you on the topic of fun. What are your main takeaways from having done this now? You, I mean, you went from two months ago having never climbed a mountain ever. You were pretty reluctant, you know, you, you kind of agreed after I twisted your arm a little bit, but yep. you were pretty reluctant to climb this mountain with me. I wonder how you're feeling about it now. I, I think that it was a great experience and um, it actually was very enjoyable. I think the ability, I know that it's not like a huge goal for a lot of people to just be able to climb a mountain. But for me, it was a big goal, right? Like it was something that I was very anxious about, that I was nervous about. And I was able to kind of overcome that. In the process, I've kind of been able to like discover exercise in a new way. Um, I've actually not drank alcohol except for that warm sake in like a month. And that has got me feeling better too. Um, 
I'm ready to go on a bender, but <laughs> <laughs> well, it was so funny coming back to the office on Tuesday and you were, uh, you'd had your hair cut. You looked like you're wearing new clothes, new and shoes. Had, you look like a completely different person. And they'd had a pizza and beer <laughs> on the weekend. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it was like a really great experience and I actually would recommend it to most people. Unbelievable. Yeah. I think that it's kind of one of these, you know, challenges that you should kind of take for yourself, especially if you think it's going to be a challenge. I think doing it right and just giving it the proper respect um, will help kind of make the experience a lot better. Well, you know the old uh, phrase about Fuji, right? It's um, that a wise man climbs Fuji once, but only a fool climbs it twice. Right, yeah. And you've climbed it six times. Six times, yeah. <laughs> I think it alternates, you know, third time it's uh, back to wise. Yeah, I'm sure fourth. it does. It's a fool. But yeah, I mean, I think that I would even, you know, could be persuaded to do it again because um, I wouldn't mind actually seeing a sunrise. I was totally happy with the rainbow, but the sunrise I think would be really nice. And I actually think it would be nice to hike at night during better weather uh, to have the like moon and stars above you, I think that would be a neat experience as well. I think what's really cool, we didn't really experience it this time because everyone was so briefly at the top and you know running to get down again. But if you are there for sunrise and good weather, top of Mount Fuji, you'll have all the other hikers with you who've got to the top. And there's this real kind of communal celebratory atmosphere when you see the sunrise and you're right. there with a couple of hundred people, say. Yeah. And it's a really special moment. So I would say if you if you ever want to do it again, don't get me involved. <laughs> I think I'm done with Fuji. Lucky seven. Lucky number seven. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's a worthwhile experience seeing the sunrise from the top. Cool. Well, thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining me in the studio. Thanks for seeing this project through. And uh, thanks to all our listeners for listening to this episode of Deep Dive. Thank you. You've been listening to Deep Dive with me, Oscar Boyd, battling a cold to bring you this episode. My thanks to Sean McKenna and Cicerone Press for making this episode of Deep Dive possible. Also to Dr. David Fedman for that fact about dyeing Mount Fuji black. You can subscribe to Deep Dive and find more episodes on all major podcasting platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Join us on Twitter and let us know your thoughts on the episode by following the account at Japan Deep Dive. Thank you as always for listening and see you next time.